I want to let you know this is not uh, some sort of Groundhog Day, uh, you know, joke on you that I, the sermon scripture has been the same for last week, the week before, and this week, and likely will be the same next week as well. Same passage, different sermon. Just want to make sure everybody's you know good with that. All right. Now, so uh, you know, last week we we considered. Um, putting on the new self. The week before that, we looked at the mortification of sin, putting off the old self. And as we've looked at this passage of Scripture in Colossians chapter 3, we see that um, we're looking at what does it mean to put on the new self. And um, it's possible that we see that as just another activity that we should be able to kind of step into. And one of the things that would be important as we come to understand this mystery of godliness that the Apostle Paul spoke to Timothy about and that he has revealed in each of his writings is that there are, there are some precursors, if you will. There are some things that would be vital and urgent for us to recognize about putting on the new self, things that perhaps our own life experience or maybe even what we've heard uh, at church before from the scriptures and so forth may have inclined us to enter into this in a way that's a little bit off, really. And so the reality is, is that the truth changes everything. Would you agree with that? The truth, the truth changes everything. That, you know, that, that's uh, maybe a common slogan, perhaps, that you've heard before. But simply knowing that which is true you know, about God and about ourselves uh, has been designed to literally change everything. We know that our new life in Christ, regeneration, uh, is more than a truth known, right? Uh, it is literally the infusion of spiritual life into one that was dead. We know that's true. But then as we go on in our new life in Christ, what we are finding out as we look into the scriptures is that it is understanding what is true and growing in that understanding that is the very foundation for us really entering more fully into the sweetness of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this passage of scripture, while we've considered particularly this idea of putting off the old self, putting on the new, I'd like to encourage us today to consider what is this thing of new life in Christ? It is resurrection life. Resurrection life. And I continue to uh, appreciate Walter Marshall and his work as well as Richard Gaffin today on this as we come to understand, hopefully in a way that encourages us, this resurrection life. And so we'll focus on three or four particular verses of Scripture this morning from this text in Colossians chapter 3, the first of which is simply uh, this short phrase, if then you've been raised with Christ. If then you've been raised with Christ. Now we're going to hear a little bit about um, grammar today. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm not really trying to jazz you up or wow you with grammar, but it's important that we understand that this being raised with Christ 
uh, is in uh, what, is, what is called the indicative mood. And the simple idea there is that it's a fact. It's a statement of fact. Now, this, is, this may seem like, oh, well, my, my, my eyes are rolling back in my head because the pastor just mentioned some sort of Greek grammar idea here. But, I mean, but it's very important that we, again, we view this. This is a statement of fact. Okay, And then we also have uh, an indicative, as we'll look at in this passage of Scripture. This indicative follows the, excuse me, this imperative follows the indicative, seek the things that are above. The imperative is a command. The imperative mood is a command. So the Apostle Paul is saying here, and they will look at this more, more fully, uh, Lord willing, in the next few minutes, but nonetheless, what we have is a statement of fact followed by an exhortation. But one of the fascinating things about the way the Apostle Paul sees the resurrection life is this connection between the indicative and the imperative, between a statement of fact and a command, right? This is who you are. Be who you are in Christ. This is who you are. Be who you are in Christ. And it seems perhaps... It might kind of hurt our brains a little bit when the Apostle Paul speaks in that way. But nonetheless, we, we look back again to the foundation of truth and of knowledge. And, and this is one of the aspects of the mystery of godliness. That our own understanding of the truth is foundational for our fellowship with Christ. We don't think that way naturally but that's what is revealed in the scriptures secondly Lord willing we'll look at verse 3 for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God you have died this is imperative in resurrection life right what was resurrected well your old self wasn't resurrected <laughs> the Lord Jesus the mystery of godliness isn't that he made the old self by reforming it with the law of God into something that's new. No, he made you new. The reason we know that it's like that is because the way the Apostle, the Apostle Paul speaks is that the old man is still present. <laughs> right? And the new man is also present. There's, there are two things, in a sense, at war in your own soul. And understanding the truth helps us to move on. The truth about our new life in Christ. And then lastly, verse, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Truth, true statements about our new life in Christ. Now, one of the fascinating things about the letter to the Colossians here is that it, the context of the, the little letter here of Colossians is what is referred to as the Colossian heresy. And the Colossian heresy uh, is, we could say in this case, fortunately, something that we have experience in. As a matter of fact, it likely describes 
how life in Christ has been for us. And William Hendrickson describes it this way. Again, the Colossian heresy. Are you putting up a tremendous but losing battle against the temptations of your evil nature? We can help you. Faith in Christ, though fine as far as it goes, is not sufficient. For Christ is not a complete Savior. That's the Colossian heresy. And there's a lot of well-meaning believers who, in their natural self, have become excellent at workarounds. Workarounds. And the problem with spiritual workarounds, of course, uh, is number one, they diminish Christ. And number two, they're absolutely failures. They don't work, right? And they leave you in a worse state. The reality is some have no real understanding of themselves. And they don't realize they're sinning against the Lord and choking their newfound faith. Or they have been persuaded that the Christian life is a miserable existence of reliving all of their past sins in their minds, being overwhelmed with sorrow and trusting that heaven will be better. Yeah, heaven will be better, but many people uh, are just stuck in this, that, this situation that is absolutely untrue of themselves. Others appreciate learning of Christ and the new life, but consider that learning has really nothing to do with living. Information that has no bearing on one's end or purpose. Knowledge that was designed to refine us, we don't actually use in the refining process to come out the other side, as it were, better. Others are satisfied with the light of a candle and haven't seemed to have heard about the sun. You're familiar with the parable of the wedding feast that the Lord Jesus spoke. In the parable of the wedding feast, we have a picture of humility, but we also have a picture of salvation. Because if you'll recall, the Lord Jesus speaks about the man who sits in the lower seat, the less honorable seat. And what does the master of the house do? He says, Sir, you need to sit up here in the place of honor. You see, that's a picture of the new life in Christ. We're, the reality and the truth about who we are is that we're in an exalted position. Now, it's, it's a great honor to be a son or daughter of the king. Wouldn't you say that? Is that not a great honor? It's a great honor to be called upon, right, to enter into the promises that our king has made and to enter into his, his work. We've been, we've been set to work as a representative and as a son or daughter of this king, this great king. All, that, all authority has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we can do all that he has called us to do, right? We'll never be lacking for materials. There'll never be an occasion when we can say, oh, well, 
I can't accomplish what God has called me to do because I don't have this. Now, that will never, ever be true about our work and our involvement and our relationship with the king. But there's a whole lot more that's true about it as well. We've been discussing our new life in Christ from this passage, putting off the old self, putting on the new. Again, we considered the mortification of sin. We've uh, considered this idea that it's taking off the old self, that it's making no provision for our sinful habits. It's the naval blockade, as it were, of our old man. We're starving the old man, right, and feeding the new, if you want to think of it in that way. We mentioned that this new life is a life of growing in real holiness, but also that there's more to the doing of this holy living than mere activity. More than mere activity. There is first, of course, the giving of new life. There's the bent or inclination, not merely for the freeness of the mind, but the bent of the mind to actually follow Christ. Now, this is important. Our new life in Christ doesn't merely free us to have, if you will, this sort of neutral mind, right? Our new life in Christ is designed to incline us to prefer that which is holy. Whereas our old life preferred that which wasn't. And this preference... Some would describe as the way a sick man prefers to take a medicine that doesn't taste very good or that will give him very bad feelings for a long time. Some people view this preference to holiness like that. But that's a very poor picture. The better picture would be the way the sick man doesn't take his medicine, but the way the sick man appreciates his health. That's a far different inclination. Also, there must be the thoroughgoing persuasion that we've been accepted by God as his adopted son or daughter, that we're actually in the exalted position of being a child of the king in a new kingdom, and that he will provide the strength we need to carry on in this new exalted position. If you aren't persuaded that your loving Heavenly Father has comprehensively provided everything for you and that in heaven is waiting for you this, uh, this completion of the new life in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're still living under this idea that the Father in heaven is a harsh taskmaster, that you may or may not have a future in heaven, then I can assure you that your action and in stepping into the joy of holiness and fellowship will be very, very different. Because the reality is, is we, we view that person very differently. If you've got a boss that hammers you, for everything, and you're continually in the servile, trembling fear about your relationship with him, that will absolutely negatively impact the way that you approach him, 
your thoughts about your relationship with him, your own work is going to be very, very different. We've, we've all experienced that to some degree. So this new life. Now as we describe the new life here, I'd like to avail ourselves of a few other passages in this letter and beginning here with chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 5. If we look, oh, what we're looking about today is what, is what is this thing of new life in Christ? What is it? What is it? If I rolled a brand new Porsche 911 up into your driveway, you like that? Shiny? And your four-year-old says, <laughs> what is it? And your 20-year-old says, <laughs> let, me, let me show you about this car. Right? Let me show you, let me pop the hood on this thing. You're not going to the store anymore. Right? No, 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 no. No. No, no you are like, it, it's, it's like some sort of voyage every day for you when you get in this car, right? It's like this crazy cockpit you just step into. Right? Here you are. You're, you're, every time you get in it, you're like this race car driver. I mean, it's, it's all of your dreams. It's, it's incredible. Right? And so this is what we're doing with this new life. In, we're popping the hood on this. Right? Here's Colossians chapter 1 in verse 5. What, it's the hope laid up for you in heaven. And you say, oh, well, I know about hope. I know about hope. Hope is like this wishful thinking, like, yeah, I hope this happens. Or No, 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 no. Now, hope is a certainty. So we've got to redefine, right? We've got to, we've got to take back this word of hope. hope. Hope is a certainty. It's not mere wishful thinking, but it's a confident leaning into the fulfillment of God's promises. When the Lord Jesus Christ gives you new life, it, it doesn't come with any provisos. Hey, I think this should work, but I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, if, if this portion of it might need to be redesigned or something. It's not like that at all. We'll get to it in Pilgrim's Progress, but when they're in Doubting Castle, right, and Christian is, he's, he's like, he doesn't know how to get out of the castle, right? And then who's his companion? Who's his companion out in castle? It's not faithful. It's not faithful. It's hopeful. Hopeful is his companion out in castle. He needs hope. And he has this key of promise. And it looks like, yeah, I don't know if this is going to work. And then he thinks, oh, wait a minute. I can put all my weight on this and it will work, guaranteed. You ever broken a key off in a lock? It's bad. It's bad. 
The key of promise will never break. It's the hope laid up for us in heaven. Believers should sense real joy and live in this joy as they grasp the truth of our future in heaven, not disconnected from our new life here on earth. We read this morning in our responsive reading, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. And in this passage, the Apostle Peter describes our new life in Christ. He describes the dignity and honor of being reconciled to God, owing to the mercy of God, to a living, glorious, certain hope that conducts the redeemed to heaven. It's spoken of as an, as an inheritance. And think of it. Most of the people that the Apostle Paul was writing to are Gentiles, and it is likely that this language of inheritance was very key for them. Why is that? Well, because in their new life in Christ, they just got told they don't have an earthly inheritance. They just got written out of the will. But the Lord Jesus says, that's like comparing asphalt to gold. He says it's incorruptible, it's holy, it's undefiled, it's unfading. And further, the Apostle Peter says its recipients are guarded from falling short of enjoying this great inheritance. Yeah, it's a great inheritance. But will I live to see it? Like, am I going to live that long? Or secondly, will I be retained in the will? Will I fall short? And Peter assures us that no, neither of those things is going to happen because not only is this inheritance guarded, it's undefiled, it's uncorrupted, it's in heaven for you with all of its luster and glory, right? But you also are being are being guarded and prepared and provided for until you get there to enjoy it. This thing of the new life. While the comprehensive security provided by God for the redeemed, such that they will enjoy the eternal inheritance, includes griefs, as Peter says, from the necessary trials as deemed best by our Savior. It's a security and care in which we can yet enjoy his fellowship and cheer. Because when things get hard, right, we might be inclined to say, oh, well, something just happened. The Lord isn't guarding me anymore. Sorrow has come into my life. Difficulty. It is true that some people's minds are manufacturing plants for griefs, sorrows, and anger. They have a little Rolodex in their mind. Ding, 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 ding. You can't be sorry about this anymore. Okay, what's the next thing? Oh, oh, yep, that one there. I can be angry about that forever. The Bible says in Titus 1, 15, to the pure all things are pure. What does that mean? Some only see what could have been. Some see what should be. Some wish they were different. That's all they see. To the pure, all things are pure. To those who want to be sad, you will always find a reason to be sad. But our new life in Christ, right? The realities of that 
Embracing our redemption for what it is, we can boldly tread this earth in faithfulness to God. We look at Colossians chapter 1. Again here, to see this glorious life, verses 13 and 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Have you ever heard one of these really spicy testimonies where people have been saved out of like horrifying places and things? Debauchery, have you ever heard that? Excuse me. <coughs> Is it possible that you sort of secretly want that for yourself? <coughs> that you really appreciate this transition from darkness to light, that you're kind of attracted to this, this incredible change? Have you ever thought about that? Well, if you've thought about it in that way, then the reality is, is that you don't understand where you've come from. Right? You see, because everybody comes from categorically the same place. <coughs> That's the domain of darkness. And you say, well, I mean, it didn't really seem so dark where I was before I got saved. Oh, it, it was dark. <coughs> it was dark. It was very dark. You were going to hell for an eternity. You were not inclined to good. You were inclined to evil. <coughs> you say, well, come on, I was only four. Dark is dark. Hell is hell. Yes, God rescued you from experiencing certain areas of debauchery, for sure, and you can be grateful for that as well, right? So it would be important for us as we think about this new life in Christ, it's important that we see the distinction between where we are and where we've been. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He's delivered us. I like uh, the term rescue better. And I also like the term that uh, I think R.C. Sproul has helped us with. You think of this rescue as a life ring, don't you? That is a way to rescue people. But what is true about people with life rings where they help them? There's something that has to be true whenever you use a life ring. It, has, it absolutely has to be true in every single case if you're going to save someone with a life ring. They have to be living. 
Life rings only work for people that are alive. Now, I'm not saying you should throw your life ring away. It's a very helpful tool. Because people uh, that are struggling in that way, they, they want to breathe. But a better description of this rescue is like fetching you from the bottom of the ocean dead. Fish food. That's the rescue. It's in Ezekiel, right? Can these bones live? And he didn't say, can this flesh live? He didn't say, can this vibrant, shiny-faced individual live? No, he didn't say that. He said, can these bones live? And if you continue to look at the prophecy in Ezekiel, what you see is, is that the flesh is coming to the bones. It's this, it's this, this true life. He's rescued us from our eternal destruction, our earthly life of empty, destructive self-indulgence. Being delivered from a tawdry and debauched life here on earth to the real joy of adoption by a loving Heavenly Father is a pale comparison to being delivered from the terror of everlasting hell. And this is the primary rescue. Now, we know this to be true, and we see it again in our own experience, or the experience of many on this earth where the church is vibrant and growing, and that is that many are saved by Christ to live only shortly and be finally killed as a martyr. We know that our new life in Christ is not a promise of a better earthly life, physically. But it absolutely is a promise of a better earthly life spiritually with the Lord Jesus Christ, a real cheerful joy. Well, why do I know that? Well, you say, well, the martyrs cried in the flames. No, they didn't. You've got to go back and read the stories. The martyrs sang in the flames. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transported us to the kingdom of his beloved son, rescued us to the kingdom of his son, the forgiveness of sins, the clear, sunny understanding of truth and real redemption and reconciliation. Think of it. I mean, when's the last time you meditated on the forgiveness of sins? When's the last time you really thought about what it meant for God to forgive you of all of your sins. I mean, that's amazing. It's a, it's a glory. Now, David's experience recorded in Psalm 25 is our own experience, right? He asked the Lord not to remember him in accordance with the sins of his youth. And when we think of the resurrection life and we expect that David was resurrected when he wrote Psalm 25 and he asks God not to remember him in accordance with the sins of his youth, what do you think would be the response of the Lord in that case? Here is the response what it must be if it were to be consistent with the revelation of Scripture. The response is this. I have no record 
of those sins. I have no record of those sins. It isn't because his memory bank isn't able to pull it up or that Clarence the Angel is part of that section of the library. It's because it no longer exists. He's blotted out the record of your sins. Well, how did he do it? With an eraser? No, not a good example. He did it by laying it upon another. And that other paid the full penalty. This is an important aspect of the character of God, right? He doesn't merely forget our sins. He's paid the penalty for those sins. He's paid the purchase price for those sins. The punishment for those sins. Now, we go on as we look at this new life in Christ. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 23. And here the Apostle Paul really steps into the Colossian heresy here because they are, uh, you know, talking about this asceticism, this idea of their adhering to the ceremonial law. They're making it hard on themselves. Verse 23 in chapter 2, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The Apostle Paul is not here referring to living a holy life in accordance with the moral commands. That's not what the Colossian heresy was about. It wasn't, it wasn't about this pharisaical heresy, right, of sort of thinking that they were actually entering into the doing of the Ten Commandments successfully because they couldn't do that either. They were never designed to do that in the first place, right? But he's talking about other aspects. He's talking about, you know, um, this abstaining from certain foods. He's talking about uh, living a very austere life in payment for sins. And the Apostle Paul says, these have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, they don't impact your own sinful nature because you're trying to reform the old man. We're not reforming the old man. We're living out of the new. And abstaining from some things such as food and drink or other lawful things, the natural man sees this as holiness. But we've not actually impacted the course of sin's desire and work, nor really mortified the flesh, nor really put on the new man. Being against things is a very common natural man tool that gives the appearance of comprehensive holy refinement but doesn't move the redeemed sinner 
toward deeper fellowship with Christ. This may be the only step people take in their new birth. It doubtless thrills Satan because it is often empty and harsh. We have known people who are proud of abstaining from certain things, right? They take a stand, as it were. And the point here isn't that your moral convictions are unnecessary. They are, in fact, vital and urgent. But the reality is, is that we know people, and when they speak about their Christian life, all you hear them saying is that I'm against this and that and the other. And if you continue to listen to them, what you will hear is a lot about themselves. I'm against this. I do this. This is my workaround. This is what I do. This, 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 and this. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is this is, this, this is the Colossian heresy revived, right? There's not any new heresies, by the way. They're all old heresies, and we can look them up. For instance, in this case, in Colossians chapter 3 and 2. Being against something doesn't make you holy. But we have the, the impression that it does. Right? We have the impression that we're moving ourselves toward Christ and deep fellowship when we're simply against that which, yes, you should be in opposition to uh, this horrifying lifestyle of transgenderism, for instance. Yes, you should be against that. But being against that doesn't make you holy. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. The implication, again, here isn't that our moral convictions are meaningless. They're vital, but they must be acted on in all godliness, or they reside only in our mouths. Because a mystery of the natural man is that we are fooled by them and want to commend ourselves. The Apostle Paul again tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great is the mystery of godliness. The way to grow in godliness is a way that is characterized by love to God and others with the word dwelling in us richly. And now the passage at hand. Chapter 3, verse 1, if you have been raised with Christ. If you have been raised with Christ. Now, in this case, this statement of fact, statement of fact, grammatically the verb is in the indicative statement of fact, but here in this particular case, it is also a conditional statement noted by this little word, if. If you have been raised with Christ. In other words, if this is true of you, if you are redeemed, then this other, this exhortation is for you. This exhortation is for you. The decisive change of conduct in the believer has been activated and made possible because of having been raised with Christ. In other words, what is it about you 
that was impacted in your redemption. Well, in a sense, we could call this synonymous with that, that is, having been raised with Christ. This resurrection is not only the motive, but the foundation of holy living. And the main idea with the Apostle Paul's expansive theology of resurrection, I'm drawing from Richard Gaffin here, is that the believer's union with Christ and resurrection has much to do with the ongoing application of salvation. Now, this is important. The point here isn't that, yeah, okay, I was resurrected with Christ, and so I got it. No, that's not the point. The point is your union with the resurrected Christ is that thing which is continually in progress, and you are stepping into that as you live out a holy life, right? It is a statement of fact, but it's something that is ongoing. The ongoing application of salvation it's the already and not yet, the already and not yet. Be who you are in Christ. Be who you are in Christ. Already I'm in Christ, but I'm not yet fully saved, right? Paul overwhelmingly describes Christ's resurrection as a passive event for Christ. This may be a challenge. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, what are the options? The way I see it, there's only two. Either the Father or Jesus. But every time the Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus raising from the dead, it's a passive event. In other words, the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Why is that so important? It's a full human experience. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. He's the firstborn. That is, he is not only the preeminent one, but he's the first one to go through this process, right? Yes, the Lord Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. The Father resurrected him. Christ's resurrection isn't primarily a display of his divinity, but it's a vindication of Christ in his suffering and obedience and the powerful transformation of him and his humanity. The believer's unity with Christ in his resurrection means that believers will never be more resurrected than they already are. This may scare you. Why? This will prepare you for heaven better, okay? This will prepare you for heaven better. What the Apostle Paul is saying is this. When you get to heaven, the flashbang has already happened. It's already happened. You've already been spiritually resurrected. You will be awaiting your resurrection body, right? You will be awaiting your resurrection body. Yes, you will, absolutely. That flashbang hasn't occurred yet. 
depending on when you're resurrected, right? But spiritually, you'll never be more resurrected than you are in your new birth. Only one per person. That's all you get. That's all you need, right? You get one, you get one spiritual resurrection, right? Colossians 3.3, 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, the Christian life is the resurrection life. It's the resurrection life. Again, looking at 3.1, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Now, this one little verse actually reveals some problems in preaching against sin. You're thinking, wow, there's some problems in preaching against sin? Yeah, actually there are. It's not categorically a problem to preach in opposition to sin and that you should be holy. However, if you're unredeemed, and you hear that you shouldn't sin, which is a very important point. You shouldn't sin, right? But the reality is, is when we hear preaching, proclaiming against sin, we may be inclined again to think that we have to be sinless in order to be redeemed. You see, that unfortunately is quite normal in the natural person. And so we leave strangely feeling sort of beat up, but also appreciating that I have some work to do. But that's only true if you've been raised with Christ. If you haven't been raised with Christ, then all you're hearing is a work salvation. The indicative here, the statement of fact, is the salvation accomplished once for all in Christ, being united to him by faith, and the imperative has in view the law of God with the Ten Commandments at its core. Now, the Apostle Paul has done this in other places. For instance, in Galatians 5.25, the Apostle Paul writes, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Again, summarizing, if we live by the Spirit, then live by the Spirit. Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The Apostle Paul, again summarizing, is saying, You are free, therefore be free. Ephesians 5.8, But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Again, the same idea. You are light. Walk as children of the light. The indicative statement of fact, you are light. The imperative, therefore, walk as children in the light. Romans 6, 2 and 12, you've died to sin. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now, some have unfortunately declared that the Apostle Paul is somehow bumbling this or something. But again, this is a normal sort of already and not yet idea. This is an important 
notion, the Apostle Paul is stating the fact, right? You have died to sin. And then he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. This is the two individuals that we spoke of, the old self and the new. We're living out of the new self. New life in Christ is resurrection life. We aren't trying to reform the old man with the law of God. That's impossible. We're living out of the new. And we're pressing on to gain understanding of, as Walter Marshall has helped us understand, what God has accomplished in our salvation. Considering the inclination of our hearts toward holiness, gaining confidence in our reconciliation to God, becoming persuaded of our future joy with Christ in heaven, and trusting that God will give us sufficient strength to accomplish all he has for us in our walk of holiness. God, in our new lives, our resurrection life, he sets us on a course, right, to step into this life of holiness. But again, just like the eager child, right, that wants to do something, right, they want to, the little girl wants to get up and make brownies right away. There's stuff that's got to happen first, right? You can't rush in. Now, the point isn't that you're waiting forever here, right? The reality is, is that, is that what we've got to do is understand what God has done. What is this new life? And then it will be absolutely inevitable that what follows is, as the Lord Jesus is the object of our love, that we fall into this faithful, loving fellowship with him. The new life in Christ. The resurrection life. Be who you are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, would you help us with this, we ask. You've laid out these truths in your word, and we pray, God, that those of us who are redeemed would take this to heart, that we would embrace what it is that is true of us in Christ, and that we would enter into the accompanying joy of our salvation. And those that are not yet redeemed, Father, may... May they look upon the great change you have wrought in the people around them. And may they be born again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.